So you know that feeling when you're looking for a pen and you know you just had it. So you're looking like underneath the papers and under the chair and like behind the couch. And all along, it's been on your fucking ear. Hey guys, it's Jordan. Welcome to episode 36 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast. Uh, that is my life right now. Uh, Ryan Hunter, he is our guest. That has also been my life for the past hour and a half. And it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, Ryan is the vocalist of Envy on the Coast and also First Vows. He is also a uh, film and TV music scorer. I think that might be the word. Uh, Anyway, Ryan's a dude that I think I met about 10 years ago playing a show with him. Uh, But this was honestly the first time that I had uh, more than a, hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you kind of conversation. And honestly, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, With this, it was Justin and I. Uh, doing it as Matt is continuing his travels and uh, you know hopefully he'll he'll come around and and hang out with us Um, this episode is sponsored by Ring of Honor Wrestling as many of you may know uh, Ring of Honor is a company that I've been working with for the past few months it's been an absolute dream job and I've been working in both a branding and marketing role Uh, and it is my pleasure to let you all know that we have our biggest pay-per-view of the calendar year this Friday. It's December 15th, uh, cable or satellite, you can order it on pay-per-view. It's called Final Battle. If you don't have cable or satellite because you cut the cord or you just don't give a fuck about paying those crazy bills, uh, ROHwrestling.com, that's a way that you can order Final Battle. Uh, The Fight TV app, F-I-T-E. Uh, That's another way that you can order Final Battle. Or if you have PlayStation Network, uh, Ring of Honor's Final Battle is available there. Uh, The show sold out right away. Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City, middle of Manhattan. I will be there. I am so excited to be a part of that. Uh, And if you haven't followed wrestling in some time, uh, but maybe kind of know a bit about what's going on... uh, Our main event, our world champion, Cody. You may know him as Cody Rhodes. He's the son of Dusty Rhodes and the younger brother to Goldust. Uh, He's been incredible, and he's been a game changer for for not only Ring of Honor, but but pro wrestling in general over the past year. Uh, And it's really been a pleasure to to work with him as well. Uh, He will be headlining against uh, a dude named Dalton Castle, who is very much uh, a professional... Um, 360 when, when you're talking about pro wrestling. So you got the entertainment aspect of it, the showmanship aspect of it. Dalton Castle, he is a fucking superstar. But also the athleticism, the uh, actual wrestling skill. This dude is legit growing up as an amateur wrestler. Um, and his strength is deceiving uh, based on his size. Uh, Dalton Castle, he is a star, as is Cody, and they will be headlining. Uh, You may have heard the Bullet Club. Hot Topic sells their t-shirts, and you really see it. It's part of pop culture. I'm sure uh, even at a lot of shows, you see Bullet Club merch. Uh, Young Bucks, they're part of the Bullet Club. Cody, uh, Marty Skrull, all those dudes from Bullet Club, they will be a part of Ring of Honor's final battle this Friday. You remember the Dudley boys, Bubba Ray Dudley, or Bully Ray, as he's now known. Uh, He'll be there, and if you're into ECW, uh, just like Bubba Ray Dudley, was in ECW, Tommy Dreamer, uh, they'll be there as well. So um, yeah, Ring of Honor, it's amazing. And, and I'd like you to, to sample it if you're interested. Final Battle would be the way to do it because as I said, it is our biggest pay-per-view of the year. Uh, with that said, uh, I want to invite you, the listener, 
of episode 36 of the Chocolate Croissants podcast to join us and the Chocolate Croissants culture in our private Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. That is where this shit goes down every day. A lot of really, really good engagement. It's a private group for a reason. If you uh, request to join, we will accept you and just take a look and see what kind of conversations are going down there. Um, and feel free to engage or start your own thread. Uh, honestly, as we say every week, it's been the most gratifying part of this entire podcast experience. Um, there's some other things, the rate review, uh, all that shit, but let me do that in the outro. I want to start with Ryan Hunter of Envy on the Coast and First Vows, episode 36. Enjoy. It is episode 36. This is Jordan. We are here with Justin. Hello. And our guest, Ryan Hunter from Envy on the Coast and First Vows. Ryan, welcome to Chocolate Croissants. Thank you for having me. I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be here. How are you feeling, man? I'm feeling good. And, you know, Sunday, just hanging, Where talking are with you? old friends. Where are, you right, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in L.A. Okay. And how long have you been living there? Because you, when we first met you, you were Jersey-based? Uh, Long, Long Island. Okay. Okay. Um, yes. So how long have you been in L.A.? I've been on, in L.A. about three years now. Uh, I think actually I'm approaching three years on, yeah, uh, end of December will be, th- will be three years here. Okay. How are the fires out there? Like, uh, so, in that? yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. It was um, one of them, the, uh, the one they were calling the Creek Fire, was, um, was getting pretty close to where I live, actually. Uh, it was the type of thing where we weren't quite evacuating or at, f- at risk of evacuating yet. But, you know, like, um, I was looking at maps and it was like, okay, all this really needs to do is jump one more freeway and then it's in the forest that's pretty much connected to my neighborhood, like where I take my dogs hiking. So, um this actually isn't the first time I've dealt with like natural disaster type stuff. Like we had a hurricane back in New York that destroyed uh, my apartment, uh, Hurricane Sandy. So we always are like, we don't have like my fiance and I, we don't have that thing. That's like, Oh, you never think it's going to happen to you. We're like, no, this can definitely happen to us. So, um, so yeah, we packed up, you know, just the important stuff and a few crates and, and put it by the door and we're like, cool, if we need to jump in the, in the truck and get out of here with them, then we'll do it, you know, but, um, yeah, sorry. No, that's crazy, man. I can't, I can't imagine. And then, so with Hurricane Sandy, you were living in New York and it was just destroyed from the water? So I, um, I lived in a town called Long Beach uh, back on Long Island, which is kind of this little sliver of land that juts out um, from the south shore of Long Island. So the best way to sort of give you the visual is you've got the bay on the north side, which is in between the greater part of Long Island and then this sliver of land. And then you have the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean on the, the south end of the island. And it's only about um, four blocks, like maybe even three blocks, city blocks, uh, north to south, um, as far as the the size of the island. So what happened was uh, the bay overflowed during the storm and came over the storm wall, which wasn't really much of a storm wall in the first place. And then the ocean came over the dunes. So the entire island itself, in most parts, was covered in about three to four feet of water. Um so yeah, we were on a we were in a first floor apartment, so it was just like it was just like a fish tank, like it was wild. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. So yeah. so 
and I, I really I want to start off kind of just giving the listeners who don't know you some context and background mm-hmm. to who you are. Um, but I think I'd imagine from something like that in New York, you you develop resilience. Um, and you've said even now you kind of have this this mindset with the fire of of being able to kind of move on. And I'd imagine just the career that you've chosen for yourself, where you're constantly touring, uh, in many ways you've adapted to just change and being in new uh, environments and situations relative to most people who kind of just like do the same thing and live at the same place and kind of stay put and whose lives, you know, I'm sure it was you were dramatically impacted, but I'm sure as an artist and a, and a traveling artist specifically, uh, my guess is that you are more well equipped with resilience for change than others. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say first and foremost, like when, um, when Lisa, my fiance and I, like when we, when we made the trip out here, we, we did it in an RV and we kind of just cruised, um, the, the U S for a while before landing here in LA. And, um, we went through New Orleans and we saw like, we saw what it was like when you go through something like that and you don't have any support systems when you don't have, you know, like I had family 20 minutes away from where I lived and, you know, FEMA came and, and took care of things there. Like I even had a friend who was working for FEMA. So we saw what it was like when that doesn't happen. So like relatively as, as you know, uh, traumatic as what we went through was, I would say I wouldn't use, I wouldn't even use that word. I'd say it's an inconvenience, you know, compared to what other people went through. But I would say, um, you know, it definitely made me care about things less, you know, when you just like, when you're like, oh, wow, like, okay, we have to start over as far as like all our stuff. I mean, I got my gear out, but that was all I really made the effort to save. Um, and then, it definitely affected how we how we treat our lives like i mean my house that i live in here with with lisa like we don't really have a lot of stuff you know if we that's why when we went to pack up stuff when it was like you know oh we might have to evacuate with this fire like we kind of looked at each other and we're like all right like hard drives notebooks my, my dog's ashes who passed away last year and um uh, I guess we're good to go. <laughs> like it's just like, whatever. Like we don't have much stuff, and this stuff doesn't matter anyway. You know, so it definitely had a huge impact on how we look at things that way. It's interesting that you, uh, you, you know, you talked about the things that you were packing up. These, you know, supposed essentials that that you deemed essential, um, and that was actually where I wanted to go. I was I was curious as to. For, for most people who have never been in that situation or may never be in that situation, there's a, you know, I think a lot of people say, oh, hypothetical, if this were to happen, like, what what do I care that much about? What would right. I really grab? You know, and, and it's interesting to have that kind of perspective. I'm sure that's, um, it helps you to navigate and maybe pivot when necessary uh, the world that you're currently dealing with, whether it's, you know, music or it's, um you know, uh, doing stuff for film or TV, it's it's probably easier to make those changes when you know really in context what really matters. And, uh, you know, you've, you've dealt with a lot of the kind of craziness of, of making those huge decisions. Of course. Yeah, it definitely helps when you, uh, when you have that sort of clarity uh, to make decisions on, you know, what you want to work on, what's worth your time, if it's something that... Uh, you know, feels um, 
personally fulfilling. It's it's definitely easier to walk away from from stuff when um, when all of that is put into perspective. When you're not necessarily trying to climb some ladder or um, you know, I don't know. You know, like it's it's just it's a it's a bit it is a bit easier when you when you have that perspective on what is important. Yeah, and I mean the the optimal the the key word there really is just stuff. It's just stuff. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like your dogs, obviously. And I, I know the one story of um, of saving the. I, I hope you know the one dog that you still have. Yes, um, Forrest. Right, Forrest. Yes. Yeah. So yes. I mean, it's like what really matters. Like we matter. The sentient beings. You know, my fiance matters. My dogs matter. Everything else is just stuff. Of course. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, and listen, I'm I'm a musician. I love gear. I have a lot of gear that I feel have, you know, even a spiritual connection to, you know, especially when songs come out of this gear and you don't know where they're coming from or you're some vehicle for that. So I love this stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I have to say that after everything, I have less of that, you know, sort of tangible connection for it um in that sense it's still something replaceable there's still plenty of other toys out there um and they're not you know my creativity isn't dependent upon these tools around me you know they're they're replaceable well it is nice that the end product of those tools and your creativity is music and audio which can be saved on a computer file in a cloud yes which will never be ruined that's kind of nice <laughs> that's to true know. That um, is true. So, so speaking about your career and, and you being a musician, uh, mm-hmm. let's go back to when we first met. And I know as we were chatting off air, uh, like I asked, have we met before? And, and you weren't sure. I know we were in the same room at least once in our lives. Right. And I think that was 2006 at, at the Record Theater in Towson, Maryland, when that existed. And I was surprised you said that was like a very clear memory for you. And that surprised me because, at least for me at the time, it was just another show. And you were just some out-of-state band that I know had some buzz. I don't know if you were signed to to a label or not at that point. But um, I know the show was was probably sold out. And that venue held close to 1,000 people. And it was a big deal for us to add an out-of-state band to one of those shows, I remember. So can you give us some context of where you were at that time as far as uh, where the band was and do you even know how you got on that show with a bunch of Baltimore local bands? I have absolutely no idea how we got on that show. I can show. fill you I... in. You fill in all the other parts of the question okay. that he asked and I'll fill you in with the details. Okay, cool. So the, the things that I remember, I remember that we were in a white cargo van um, which had recently been an upgrade from our like 1979 brown cargo van that was i mean just barely running so that was like an upgrade for us we we still had just a mattress on top of all the gear and like two people had to lay on there one sort of laid in this hole in between drum cases and then you had driver and passenger um so i remember that i remember that we were very new to that might have been the longest run we had done Uh, i believe it was like five or six consecutive dates because prior to that we were all still in school and basically doing like the weekend warrior thing where we were just like, you know, two shows, Friday and Saturday night, um, uh, a VFW hall in Pennsylvania and like, you know, whatever. Um, so I remember that that was like, I remember looking at the itinerary and being like, wow, like we're going on tour. And it was like, it was like five days. So it's a great feeling though. 
Oh, yeah. No, it was, you know, you can't, no matter, I, I mean, I've seen the whole world or a lot of it through touring, but like the first time that you're leaving on a stretch of dates like that and it's all these places you haven't been, like you're never, that's why it's like ingrained as a very vivid thing. Um, I don't know what was going on as to why the traffic was so particularly horrendous, but I do know that we did not budget enough of a window and it was like we were in like doubled our travel time as far as how bad the um, the traffic was. So I remember that we were basically going to pull up and throw our stuff on stage. Like we were calling whoever the promoter was like, don't, you know, we're going to make it for our set, but you know, like we're pretty much rolling up and throwing the shit on stage. Um, and I remember that's exactly what happened. I remember like going into that green room area, which if you're playing VFW hole, uh, VFW halls, excuse me, or VFW holes, because that's a lot of times what they felt like, um, that room had like a pool table in it, right? Like mm -hmm. it was it, leather couches and like there's photos of all the bands that have played there. Like that's a new world for us. We're like, oh my, oh my God, like we're at a real venue, you know? And, um, I remember us just rushing through that room, throwing the stuff on stage and looking out and like it might it, like to us, it was like 5000 people. You know, the fact that we couldn't see the back and there was like a barricade that might have been the first show we ever played where there was a barricade. Uh, now that I think about it, I, I can't imagine another show prior to that. And that's a big deal. Like, that's a big deal when you see that thing that separated you from the bands you love growing up. And now there is one between you and these kids. And you're like, oh, my God, like, it's a real show. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So uh, I remember that. And then I remember meeting Justin vividly. And I remember watching you guys play. And you guys were a three-piece that sounded... You're a three-piece, right? It was a four-piece. The fourth was more like electronics and keyboards. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, but I remember it sounding huge, and I also remember that that was, like, aside from Refused, that was one of the, <laughs> like, earlier... Like, that was one of the... You, were, you guys were, like, some of the first people I saw, like, meshing rock music and riffs with, like you know this electronic stuff and you had this like party vibe to you guys where like people were just having fun and i genuinely hadn't seen anything like that like where we came from it was just that whole emo thing and there wasn't anybody there wasn't even anybody who could play like you guys that you know and we wanted to be like that too we wanted to be players so it was like on top of the whole experience itself of course playing with a band who you're stoked on makes everything 10 times better so um yeah that was it's a very beautiful memory for me i, I love i love thinking back on that show that's really that's cool. such a great yeah that's such a great memory to have it's um it's crazy your your perspective and your memory on it jordan's memory or lack thereof uh and then i remember from i remember meeting you guys i remember you guys were talking about i think i remember you guys were calling girlfriends back home and telling them Oh my God, we're playing this this venue with these bands. This is like ridiculous. And and it's so funny that like I remember because I was so into you know like networking and the business and figuring out what the deal was. I'm pretty sure at the time was it Matt Galley was working yes. for you guys, right? Yes. So and I remember that was always the one of the steps that we were trying to get to was, you know, hey, instead of my instead of Jordan and I booking the shows for ourselves, how do we bring someone onto the team who could help us get the right shows in the right areas? Sure. And I think 
it was um, Galley who had been working with like what was like Taking Back Sunday and Brand New and yes, all the bigger bands at the time um, took you guys under 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 his wing. Um, yep. I think maybe through management, through Will Noon potentially. Is That's that right? exactly what it was. Cause right, he, Straight Light he was, Run. Exactly. He was booking yeah. Straight Light. Will brought us to Galley, and then we eventually signed with Photo Finish, which was Galley's label. So he was, right. Galley was our guy. And we definitely, you know, we were young, and we didn't, I mean, we were excited to be with him in, in his corner, but we defini- definitely, I remember having a lot of conversations with bands, even when we were on the road, who were like, oh my God, like you guys are with Galley? And we're like, yeah, like what's what's the big deal? Like he's our booking agent. It's yeah, sure, you know, and like like didn't realize how big of a deal that was until later, uh, especially when we had situations where we needed Galley to fight for us or like mm. we were pissed about something that we realized how how far his word went in this industry, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, I think what was really interesting for us was I'm pretty sure that was our CD release party and. Yes. I think, you know, we probably felt like we wanted to stack the deck heavy with locals. And I remember, if I remember, like, somewhat of the lineup correctly, it was it was an interesting lineup. And then to have someone else thrown on, especially someone from out of state, I guess they realized the power of, of the draw that was already there. But to me, I'm so thankful for that because even though our, our relationship is is more than spotty, I always feel like it's super strong no matter when we reach out to each other. Absolutely. Um, or get to see each other in passing, which I love. You know, it's it's uh, absolutely it's crazy. You know, over a decade now, and here we are. Um, and I still have such vivid memories from that time. I remember you guys were touring on the EP that you had at the time. Yes, and and I remember how into that record I was, and then trying to get subsequent bands when you were still touring with Envy to get on shows with you guys, just because it was nice to see you and the guys. Right, right. Super cool. Yeah, man. So I'm curious, Absolutely. you mentioned uh, just the, the strength of having the manager because you guys were so young at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and around that time, what, how old were you actually? Uh, 2006, I guess, like the average age of our band, because some were younger, some were older. We're about 17, 18 years old, I think. Okay, and, and I guess Boy Crazy, Justin and I's band at that time, we were more like 18, 19 at that time. And right. Uh, you know, what struck me was that you said that you were young, which obviously you were, and I'm thinking back to that time, and I end up ending that band uh, in 2006 uh, just because uh, my I physically couldn't tour. I mean, I was performing shows in a neck brace. and I remember that. Okay. I remember that. I remember so, he- at least seeing that or hearing from Justin about that. Right. So we would do, you know, a, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday run. And then sometimes I'd be missing school on Monday because I just was physically stiff. And sure. uh, And I saw the trajectory of our band and where it was going and the interest from, from, from I guess, people of the next level up where we could start booking uh, a full U.S. tour and, and things like that. And to your point... I think what helped us as an instrumental band was that we were memorable and we didn't sound like every other either emo, pop punk or hardcore band at the time. So I I felt the momentum of where it could go in in many ways. I'm glad that it didn't and that Justin and I had the touring experiences and really other cool experiences later because I felt like I was not emotionally mature enough to probably do what you guys did at that time. Um, so what was that like for you to literally grow up 
in that position where you're a frontman of a band who who is having relative success and and touring the world and um what was that like for you and was it difficult and and where did you uh i did you have role models of like you know what i mean sure sure i mean the first thing i'll say is i definitely wasn't emotionally mature enough for it either like at all uh i just i it was what i it was the only path i saw it was the only thing i wanted leaving high school um you know sometimes i think about that like how uh, it's weird you you see today you see all these like positivity mantras and like i did a podcast recently where it was like you know asking me about um sort of the methods of practice and things like that growing up and um it, there wasn't it wasn't that wasn't what it was for me it was like i would come home from school and all i wanted to do was play drums you know and all and then when my parents would yell at me to stop playing because i've been playing drums for three hours i'd just go upstairs and play guitar and it was like it wasn't a regiment it was just all i knew you know so then when it came to touring and that i saw the bands from long island leaving long island and it was like their ticket out and um I was like, that's what, that's where I'm going to go. That's what I'm going to do. Like having, you know, no idea what that actually meant. Um, so, um, I didn't, I had no desire to be a front man. The beginning of the band was Brian, Sal and myself all sharing vocals. And there was this sort of idealistic idea that Sal was going to play more keys so that Brian and I could both play guitar and that whoever brought an idea to the table, like lyrically and vocally, like they would sing that song. Um, and that was sort of the um, initial ethos of the band. Uh, very quickly, it just so happened that I was I was just writing a lot of stuff, and then we also realized that like three guitars on top of one another weren't sounding very good. Um, and Brian just called me and was just like, "Hey, uh, you're going to be the front man." And I fought him on it, and I was like, "I don't want to be a front man. I don't want to just sing. I don't want to be that guy. I don't." You know, and he was like, pretty much was like, too bad you're good at it. Like you don't even <laughs> realize you're doing it, but you're good at it, and you're you're like you're gonna do it. And I, again, I just fought him on it until eventually, we didn't really have a choice. Like there weren't, Sal wasn't comfortable on keys, and one you know at that point wanted to play guitar anyway, so it just sort of happened, and I fell into it. Um, as far as role models, um, I don't know. Uh, I'm not really sure anyone in particular stood out you know we were i feel like i was such a sponge as a kid that like it was a lot of my peers at the time was like you know just being on the road with different bands unknown bands you know i i always liked people who stood for something i definitely gravitated more towards you know i don't think we ever really sounded very punk rock necessarily like as much as maybe our roots were there um I never considered us a punk rock or hardcore band, but I always gravitated towards people who had that ethos and like that mentality. I, I liked that. I liked um, using it as a vehicle to say something. Um, so we very early on were definitely that type of band. Um, but it was uh, it was definitely weird, man. Like when you say when you say not being like emotionally mature enough, um, it's a lot to to definitely take on when you're i mean so much of it was just fun and and laughing with the guys and then there's the other part of it that's like um that's not fun that's like you're growing up 
and you're probably the most malleable that you're going to be in your whole life between 18 and 22 or 23 and that's a really weird thing to go through while being on the road 10 months out of the year and you know managing our relationships with one another and all of that um i'd say in retrospect we were very fortunate we were very close like as friends um i'm obviously still very close with brian uh i had a lot of insecurities that definitely came out in like a very controlling way so i'd say on the emotional maturity level like that was definitely a pitfall for everyone else to deal with with me um it was always like a double-edged sword with me like it was like everyone kind of knew that the band's like forward motion was directly related to sort of like my manic state in a lot of ways uh, um but it also made me difficult to deal with you know so it was like i think everybody kind of took the good but the bad with me and um so much so that when i calmed down a lot uh i remember a, a friend blatantly telling me like uh, my friend will who you guys brought up earlier will noon uh when i was demoing some stuff with him i remember him like looking at me and being like i think you write better songs when you're like not concerned with being a good person <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> so, so well, and when you say like manic states and, and how that correlated with with the trajectory of your band i mean was that you would have maybe a, a night or two where it was more difficult to be with you or is this like stretches of months it was just a general all the time uh type of thing it wasn't like i i don't mean manic state in the sense that like you know actual manic depression or anything like that or like that i wasn't sleeping for you know 72 hours straight sure. um i mean more that like um like i said there's so much that when i look back on like when even when brian and i talk that there's just so much that we did that felt like it, it was just like this is what we did like i didn't i wasn't like you know taking notes out of the playbook of anybody and being like this is the path to success it was just like it was all i knew like i didn't smoke i didn't drink i didn't have any ho real hobbies or anything other than like surfing and that i lived in new york so i got to do that two months out of the year maybe and uh unless i wanted to put on a thick wetsuit but uh, it, it was just kind of like yeah like we come home from tour and i would call everyone and be like cool like let's let's get back to practicing um tomorrow you know and it was like we rehearsed and played and wrote and just we were constantly active you know like we it was all we knew like i i, I like it was just all i knew and all we knew and like I was very, very, like, stick to your guns, very headstrong on the way things should be, and, like, just, n I never questioned anything, you know, which is definitely something I do now, now that I'm older, especially when you take other people's feelings or thoughts into account or whatever, but at that time, it was like, no, this is what we need to do. I don't even think I ever asked why, it was just, <laughs> this is what we have to do, this is how we're going to do this, like, this is what I want to do, and, um... And that could be difficult to deal with, you know? Yeah, as you're sharing your experience, I really relate to it because I remember being a teen and, you know, playing in a band and, and creating music. That was my tunnel vision. 
And so, you know, it never felt like work. It was my oxygen just to play drums for hours and, and to try to find a band and to work to, to promote that band and, and right. realize my dream of playing. And I, I guess for me, if, if I had continued uh, with that trajectory, and I realized, I guess, the, the aha moment in, here in your story is like, I guess we would have just figured it out all along. And I know right. for me, ending the band, uh, that was a real setback, even though it was my decision, but it wasn't something I wanted to do. But it really, uh, it was a, a punch in the fucking face of like, well, who am I if I'm not a musician in a band? And, That's tough. You know, and it, and it yeah. took a lot of time. And then I discovered I was still in school towards the end at, at college and mm-hmm. didn't really figure out what I was going to major in because at that time I was just trying to take classes that would help with the band stuff. But I, I, sure. I was attracted to psychology and ended up going into graduate school. And, but I never really felt like myself until the beginning of grad school where I found a way to tie music and drumming specifically into that field. And then it was right. like, okay, this is me and, and I feel alive in this again. And it really took a couple years of of really figuring out like who I am and what makes me feel alive. And then how can I express that to the world? Yeah, I dude, I know exactly what you mean. And it's, it's interesting that it, uh, I would say it doesn't even, it's not only people who quit bands that feel that, that question bubble up, you know, um, I, I know when Brian and I stopped with MD on the coasts, uh, seven or eight years ago, um, it was because other people left and therefore it ended. And I felt a sort of weight off my shoulders. Even if I didn't see it coming, I didn't know what to do. Um, I knew that I could have never been the one to end the band as like the singer. Uh, I felt as though I had enough people, close friends, musicians, when things were bad internally with my band, kind of bring up to me like... um, kind of say to me like you have to remember as the singer no matter how much you're close with everybody else you're outside of them you have a gun to their head because you're harder to replace and there was just sort of this position that I was in that I couldn't do anything about um so I felt relieved when the band ended but I know that Brian didn't feel that Brian definitely had a period of time where much like you struggled with the idea of like well I was Brian from Envy on the Coast who the fuck am I now you know like and like what am I doing now you know and um we both jumped into doing North Korea with Billy and it sucks that like, I think we made some really cool shit there. Um, but it was like, we definitely had like personal work to do mentally. Um, Brian and my relationship went to hell because of a lot of uh, other things going on at that time. Wait, this um, is a band called North Korea. Yeah, we were in, we were in a project <laughs> called North Korea that eventually we just went by net NK cause, uh, political things prevented us from doing certain things like traveling. And, uh, it was with Billy Reimer from Dillinger Escape Plan. Um, it was a project we started with him and, uh, our bass player, Mike Sadis. Um, and we dove into that. Like I, f- that happened because I was like wrapping up the business at our merch company and Mike worked there and was like, Mike's a very, very like go getter type dude. And like, definitely wasn't like, Oh, this dude's band just broke up. Let me give him like a week. He was just like, Hey, I play with Billy from Dillinger escape plan. You want to hear some fucking demos or what? And I was just like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so 
we dove right into that like a like a rebound chick and it was it struggled because of the nature of that you know like just me being on stage mentally my wheels spinning um so it's like i had the same experience you did even though i was staying active and then i have friends who are in highly successful bands who who ha- who ask themselves the qu- same question like oh i'm so and so from so and so and that's it you know and like and i don't i don't feel it's fulfilling anymore but i'm not walking away from this because it's like this thing that's supposed to mean the world to me um i don't know it's interesting it's interesting how like uh, it's interesting to me that the the question can bubble up no matter what position you're in you know i i think it's also relevant now more than ever with the suicides that we've had happen in the last few years, um, I've had to explain to people who aren't musicians who like go into that whole, like, I don't get it. You're a front man. You're iconic. You're a legend. Like, how do you off yourself? And it's like, yo man, like when you're in a, in a shower of a hotel room away from your family and you've been doing this years and like, you're struggling with something like those things don't provide you with solace. Like those things don't, they don't amount to anything as far as your mental well-being at, at a certain point. Like, there's there's more there, you know? Yeah, self-identifying as a person uh, in some sort of group, and for all of us, it's super relevant to just talk about being in bands. When when that's not there anymore, you lose the, identif- the identity of who you really are. And, I mean, we've talked about this recently on the podcast of, um, you know, it's like, you have this this almost like a there's like this underlying power you walk into venues people know who you are it's easy you don't need to like self-lubricate with anything to feel comfortable because people are already drawn to you because they know the work that you're currently doing and they're respectful of it or at least they're tolerant of it and they're aware and it's and it's very easy and and i very much feel uh for brian in that context where when when the band was over i uh, you know, for boy crazy, I really wasn't sure what to do with myself. Cause like Jordan, I was in college, but I was kind of just taking business classes or, or just taking general classes, not really with sure. a trajectory of what I wanted to do. I just knew that, well, the here and now is this music thing. And, and I'm sticking to that. And what's interesting is, is, uh, bringing up the, the topic of the suicides that we dealt with, uh, or that we, you know, were aware of this year, uh, you know, high level, high profile musicians. And what's really right. interesting, it seems like, um, vastly different from maybe the level of success that we all had made it to, you know, in comparison to, to say like a, a Chester from Lincoln Park or a Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Yeah. But when you look at their careers, it's not that the band disbanded necessarily, it's that they kind of fell from the tippy top of the mountain. And once you've kind of tasted the air up there or tasted the fruit that's up there, when it's taken away from you, then it's like now you're having this this struggle of who am I if I'm not at the top, top, top of the game. Right, right. And that's, you know, that, that's that's really interesting to even just kind of ponder in, in whatever fields you end up in. Yeah, there's probably going to be a point where you hit this stride. You know, if let's say you're um, like, you know, you're from the fitness world and you do like bodybuilding or powerlifting, something of that nature. Um, you know, there's going to be a sweet spot. Of and course. that's. I'm sure for, for most, uh, most people are going to deal with that in, you know, you're going to have more energy when you're 25 and 35 than when you're 55 and you're still trying to keep it. And it's interesting because we see that, like, you know, we see that with, with our parents, uh, you know, and parents around us, you know, people at that age, it's like, well, yeah, at one point you were at this one place of success and now it's not there anymore. And 
I guess, you know, what's interesting, and, and I'll ask you this, because you've been there where you've been in a band, it's ended, and you identified as this, you know, you were the singer of this band, you were in this band, um, and people knew you as that. And then you kind of walked away, you did a project, you walked away, you started a new thing by yourself. As you as you do all of this, how do you keep up with the growth um, personally so that you can identify as I am me first, not me with all these other titles that come with being as part of these groups? Have, have you thought of, you know, maybe... Uh, ways to keep yourself not may- maybe fully separate, but keep you personally growing as you grow projects. And at what point do you find, uh, or can you can you ever remember a specific point where you decided to detach one from the other? Right, right. Um, well, I think for better or for worse, I've always focused more on the personal growth and my own sort of like dharma and 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 journey and vocation and um i think that's probably helped keep me a bit more sane um uh, of course i've had my my own moments and my own struggles but um you know it's definitely it's probably hindered my success if anything um actually i know it has you know because there's there's been plenty that i haven't been willing to do um out of prioritizing what you were just talking about, you know, is that, you know, I've had plenty of moments where, um, you know, where people would, where there'd just be that thing waved in front of me, that opportunity or whatever, and um, I've just decided it's not for my path, you know, and and I've wanted to search for whatever. My goal is always to just make, the th- make something that I am so supremely excited about and feels like it came out of me and I was just the vehicle for. And that's not always a smart business decision <laughs> to focus on that. You know, that's not always the, um, the smartest thing to do. And I, I definitely look around and have seen a lot of people who have uh, focused on other things or maybe a lot of time for that, but then understand playing the game to a certain extent. Um, I've been lucky enough that, um, to my own detriment on a commercial, commercially successful level that I've been able to focus more on the work, um, and, and what's important to me there. Uh, cause I think the important thing to remember is that just, you know, you bringing up uh, Cornell or Chester or anybody, it's that, um, really all we're talking about is commercial success when we're talking about these peaks and valleys and these mountains that we all climb or whatever. Like it's, it has nothing to do with quality of work and it has nothing to do with like, uh, with anything other than, than popularity, success and like your time in the spotlight having come and gone or whatever. But I mean, there are so many artists that their records that the records that are my favorite or even films too, that I'm sure you guys have this too, where it's not, it's like, I have the opposite thing as like what the, the, the typical like hipster thing of like, I only like their early shit. Like, I feel like I love so many records that was the, that were the artists like later after they, you know, had a bunch of hits and now they went and experimented or did this thing. And there's so many records like that and they weren't commercially successful and they weren't anything. And I feel as though a lot of times that artist was heading towards that, you know, and, and I think it's important to remember that that like barometer 
for success. It's bullshit. Like it's it's. I mean, it depends what your goal is, but like, if I can eat and I can have what makes me happy around me and stay healthy, um, then that that's fine with me. Like I'm I I don't need much more than that, and therefore unconsciously or subconsciously I decided I wanted to spend time on selfishly making the best thing that I that I think is the best thing I can make you know um yeah I don't know I'm not sure yeah, if I'm I think, making sense or heading no, off I on think you are I think it's really important for people to hear this um in general I think it's it's nice to have an idea of what success really means to you and in more recent times for me, going back to school and not having as much time, um, you know, to, to kind of build brands and business and do all these other things I would I would maybe want to spend more time on, um, I have to be realistic. And to me right now, success is having enough time to, to spend with my fiance, having enough time, you know, like quality time, having enough quality time with the dogs, having enough quality time to train the, as a personal trainer, like my friends who I actually enjoy hanging out with, right? Because that's really important to me is not only being able to like hang out with them, but then we're able to share this like love for physical fitness and and self and betterment. Um, you know, because we all we're all striving to just be better versions of ourselves every day. And um, and and then like at its core, as I'm back in school to be a dietitian, it's like a really big part of success for me is just having enough money to buy good food. Absolutely, I agree. And, and that's so vastly different from the Justin of ten years ago when I was in the band doing the band stuff. Because at that point, the success was really like, well, I want to, you know, make it, quote unquote. What does that mean? I don't really know, but I have this idea. And yeah, it's like commercial success. It's not. It's a bit personal, but it's uh, it's uh, like you said. It's it's kind of the the barometer gauging the barometer. Um, it's almost like like through the the temperature of all these other people and not of myself. Right. Which right. it's nice hindsight or in retrospect to look back and say, well, I'm I'm really glad that that with those experiences and kind of coming full circle to a decade later, this is where I am and this is where this is what success is for me. Because it would be interesting if we had never stopped doing those bands and we still thought that success was at that time you know, that the, the same definition was still present in my head. And Justin, I think you hit the punchline right there that back then success was dependent upon uh, external feedback. And that's always a losing game. Uh, sure. So, so I know for me, when, when I ended the band, that was uh, a real, I mean, that's where I discovered meditation. And that's when I first started developing uh a deeper connection with myself because I think when you're looking for things like self-love and acceptance and worth um, and esteem externally, no one can provide that but yourself for you. And and it seems like now with both of you, you guys have these priorities of you know the women in your life and uh, and just and treating yourselves kindly and not looking for uh, you know how many fucking Instagram followers you have uh, or how well your song charts on iTunes uh, to determine the the value of you as a human being. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the dogs. And the Dude, dogs. always the dogs. Always the dogs. I hear one crying, but yeah, always the dogs. <laughs> so Ryan, um, 
Now, now you did say like you have to at least earn enough to eat and to live. So I'm curious, is music uh, your sole income right now? Yeah, uh, I'm fortunate enough that I've had enough going on in um, in enough different projects and just have my hands and enough stuff that I've been able to, for the most part, survive just doing music. Um, I spread myself pretty thin a lot of times, uh, not even with the amount of work, but just with the multiple little things that I put on my plate. But, um, but yeah, like I, I, that's, that's kept me sane as well because it keeps things interesting. Um, you know, like we were saying earlier, just what you choose to focus on. And, um, you know, for me, I've tried on a bunch of, like I've I've gone a few different places with my own stuff with First Vows and tried on a few hats there as far as like what I wanted that project to be, where I wanted it to go. And, you know, like I alluded to earlier, I had a few moments where I was like, oh, well, it could go here and that could mean this, this, and this would take me to this level of success or whatever. But like, do I really see myself realistically doing all that comes with that um, if it's to go there? And a lot of the times answered, the answer was no. So I've pivoted. I've done a lot of scoring work in the, lot, uh, in the last uh, year or so, um, which has been great. I definitely have struggled uh, with collaboration um, in my own stuff. Uh, or at least finding people who I speak the same language as. But I've learned that with scoring, I really, really enjoy the collaborative um, effort uh, with working with a director. Um, there's something about having the visual element as like your compass of, of the decisions that you make, the palette that you choose from, um, just everything. Uh, I really enjoy that. It, it I struggled a lot in songwriting sessions without having that compass because everyone's goal could be different, you know, as far as how you want to steer things. And uh, I often felt like the lone opinion in the room in a lot of those sessions. But with this, I just seem to have a handle on it because the, the picture is what rules at the end of the day. There's no debate over that. You know, it's like it needs to serve the picture. You're, you're, what you're doing is just to highlight the emotion that the director is trying to give the audience at any given moment, you know? Yeah, I don't think uh, people re realize how important that is. And for me, as a, a huge Nine Inch Nails fan, oh, I yeah. was able to watch, you know, a few Fincher films, David Fincher, and, um, and it was just, you know, starting with The Social Network, and then I think it went to uh, uh, The Girl with the Dragon's Hat 2, the American yep. adaptation, <clears throat> and then Gone Girl more yes. recently. Um, yes. which end, uh, ended up being three of, of like my favorite movies of all time. But on top of that, there was already this, this like underlying love of Trent Reznor and the fact that he and I believe it's Atticus Ross together, uh, work on scoring. And it's great because it has, it has so many elements of, of, I, I want to say Trent's personality, but I don't. I don't want to say that without personally knowing him. So, like, uh, you know, it has so much of the context of, of um, in the vein of the music that he's made for so many years, and Absolutely. so it feels so authentic yes. um, for you when when you're now working on this this different collaborative collaborative effort, uh, mm -hmm. different from when you were in a band uh, and maybe had those issues of working with someone else. Now that it's working in a a, a different relationship um 
does that make it much easier? And then how do you find ways to get your personality or to keep it authentic to you as you're, as you're working to navigate towards making music for someone else's vision? If I'm being honest, I don't think I've even started the journey of inserting my own personality into this stuff, uh, at least consciously. Um, if if there's been any bit of that, it's been via, um, I would say, um, just the tools that I'm using. Um, like, the most recent thing that I did, you know, I... We, it, it had to stay fun and it had to stay upbeat and I decided to use mostly like drum breaks like 90s sounding drum breaks and big aggressive synths which are just two things that I love so I guess my DNA found its way into it that way but I, I, I do feel as though I'm a long ways still because I'm at the start of this journey you know of, of this scoring world stuff that I'm still trying to amass all the knowledge um as far as, you know, how, uh, like, just the, the, the craft itself, um, just, just focusing on that before I um, think too much about my own personality and my own palette being in there in that way. Because, um, uh, you know, I admittedly didn't realize how powerful it was until I got into it, too. And, you know, it's amazing like it's amazing the small little things that you can do like certain instruments that you don't even have to be saying anything quarterly that the tonality of the instrument playing one note or an octave which would typically not say anything musically but the tonality of the instrument says something um or on the contrary like you know if you want to create anxiety or anything like the things that you can do or not do, you know, to um, fight the scene or whatever. Like it's, it's just incredible. Like it's, it really is amazing. It's the type of thing that I always knew was massive, but I didn't realize until sitting in these spotting sessions and watching stuff without the music in there, how much it's the music making the audience feel everything. Um, it's really incredible because a lot of times, watching it without music, it's just plain awkward. Um, until until it's in there so uh so yeah it's uh I, I, to answer more directly i'm i feel like i'm still focused on the craft and uh, i'll i think i'll naturally get to that place of of my personality finding its way into it yeah i was actually commenting on the the effect of music uh justin and i were at dinner last night and it was like holiday season jazz kind of standards and it felt good for the restaurant sure. we were in and all of a sudden like fucking imagine dragons came on and yep. and it just totally like rocked dude, it's me. horrible and and it, and it, it was like it was so bad this dinner sucks now dude me <laughs> dude i'm telling you my, my so lisa and i like we don't go out often uh when we do like we don't eat meat so like there's however many restaurants that you can choose from. I mean, I'm in LA, so there's more than necessarily in other places. But at the same token, dude, I can't tell you how many times we have sat down and been like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, like you're in a tire. Like, I'll give you two examples, okay? We went to an Indian place this one time, and this dude had on his straight, like, sad guy mixtape all night. Like, I'm in an Indian restaurant. It's this beautiful atmosphere, and this dude's blasting like tears for fears the cure joy division which like they're all great but like not now and then there was a moment in the dinner when 
it started skipping. And I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. <laughs> oh, this is no. this guy's actual mix CD. Like, he's he's sad, and he's doing it right now for everyone in this restaurant. Like, it was it was incredible, you know. And dude, like you said, it I don't I do not understand why that's such an afterthought. But that's an afterthought, like everywhere. It's amazing. Like I've eaten at like five star restaurants where I'm just like, why? Like. We had, dude, we ate at a vegan sushi place that was like this world-renowned chef that was out in Manhattan Beach. They had on, like, it was like like Berkeley College of Music-style players doing, like, jazz, or, like, not even jazz. Like, they were doing, like, covers of popular pop songs, but it was it was horrendous. It was the most distracting, like, like, imagine dragons, but, like, everyone's just, like, going off, you know? Right. And but like jazz chords and shit and I'm just like why why is this happening in this sushi restaurant right now? Like I can't pay attention to anything that you're saying because this is horrible. Yeah, and and I, and I know music has an effect on all of us mostly subconsciously and, and I think we are in the minority cuz there's everyone else in the restaurant probably didn't even know music was playing to be honest. But you're right. But how does it creep into their enjoyment of the meal? Because, like, I've also heard this thing on NPR about this dude who started studying, like, how music can bring out certain flavors in things. So he was on the opposite Ooh. end of the spectrum of, like, maybe getting a little too snobby about it. But I feel like there's a nice middle ground where we can at least acknowledge that someone's experience, whether they are, like, realizing it's part of the experience or not, is affected by that, you know? Well, for, for people like us, obviously, it's a gift and a curse. We're way too close to the fire for it. So Oh, yeah, dude. If, if we were the ones curating the experience, we would be fully aware and, and immerse ourselves in the idea of, hey, what is, like, the most authentic music that can be played for the place that we're in? How do we right. make people feel subconsciously the best and right. like i want to tap into this npr guy now because i feel like if there is a way to create uh certain tastes from the food that you're eating that has nothing to do with the food but is based on the music then like bring that on i want to know Dude, about that i'm with you i i had the idea a while ago i was just like i'm just gonna go door to door and like start talking to these restaurants about curating playlists for them or something but uh why not it, it you know you just create the market for it Right, right. Especially the right place that has that has, you know, the the budget to allocate towards something like that. Or if if you just came up with the idea of creating, and I know this is this is somewhere in the world where you take away some of the senses, and then the food becomes so I'm sure like in some context vastly different. That like the right. appeal of the food, the taste of the food, everything is altered because you took away some of the senses. Like uh, I think if I remember correctly, I remember hearing of dinners that were in the dark. Yep. Yep. Right. So then you're like, you, you, your other senses have to be completely heightened. But yeah, I yes. mean, this is. So the three of us are starting this uh, side music thing that we meant to tell you guys about, where we go curate your playlist. There you go. At your restaurant. Yeah, and it matters. I mean, it's no different from you know, I was in a hotel in, in I think Columbus uh, last month, and we walked in and just it smelled amazing, and that dramatically improved. You know my yes. experience of being in there in the morning um, and no different than like visual design and with with sound it's just it's sound design it's it's experience of design and the world's greatest you know businesses and and brands uh, create a very intentional highly curated experience from a 360 point of view yes 
Totally. So, Absolutely. So, Ryan, I'm interested with the scoring, because uh, mm-hmm. from, from my perception of what you've shared, it's like, okay, you're in it, but you're also just figuring it out, which is one, a really cool lesson of just saying yes to something that, uh, yes. you, you know, of just you're jumping in two feet first and then figure it out from there. Was it an opportunity that came to you or was this something that you were actively pursuing? Uh, it was an opportunity that came to me a long time ago, actually. I was still with Envy on the Coast when I did my first scoring work. Um, the uh, my f- A friend of mine from Long Island went on to be the media director for the Chicago Bulls. And, um, you know, that's an organization who, like you were saying, they're a brand that has always been very, very conscious of everything that they've put out. You know, uh, they're one of the few... They're probably one of the few sports organizations who has a song that is so widely recognized as their thing. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't think there's very very many teams out there that have like a theme that is so immediately recognizable. So, um, so Josh was very very. Yo, let me plead ignorance. What song is that? It is uh, shit. Um. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up right now because now now the name is escaping me. Is it um, a popular song or like a custom theme for them? No, it's it is a popular song and but not many people know that it is. Uh, like most people don't realize that it was a song that is it's Alan Parsons project. There you go. So they sort of co-opted that, started playing it in their arena a long time ago, and it just became the Chicago Bulls thing like it's just like it's their thing you know and uh i think because of that they're they're not the type to be like oh we'll just put out this commercial with library music on it and instead josh contacted me um when they were doing a promo a long time ago for like the beginning of whatever you know the season was that year and um he had me score this commercial spot for him and uh it was awesome like he was crazy involved in uh working on it and um as far as like how many draft like it was a 30 second spot and i think i probably did like 28 drafts of it like um the first three or four starting completely from scratch because he'd be like i want to go this route or i want to go that route and then eventually you know somewhere totally different and uh and then he would cut to my music actually not the other way around so i wasn't scoring to picture yet but uh, the theme was strong enough that they started playing that in the arena, and um, which is amazing. They played that in the arena. It was on all the commercial spots in Chicago. Um, so yeah, that was like my intro into that. And then I continued to work with Josh for years after that, doing a, like all sorts of little little pieces. I actually remember doing a spot for the what would have been Welcome to. Um, Chicago LeBron James during the decision we had a commercial ready to go uh, and I have somewhere on my hard drive a video that is like the welcome to Chicago LeBron James thing that I can never show anybody for obvious reasons (laughs) and uh, uh, yeah so I did that and then I had a buddy who was at the New York Red Bulls soccer team um, and he very similar situation he was just like hey i really want to go the extra mile with this piece we're doing to highlight the season it's sort of like a season recap and worked with him on that and yeah most of my work 
in scoring was just come from things like that like that guy whose name is jeremy passed me off to a director friend of his and we did a few pieces for intel commercials and then um those are really fun like very electronic bass type stuff and uh yeah it happened very organically and then the, the show came in uh last year i did the first season of this uh this streaming show and um and then uh, they got picked up for 30 more episodes. So we did 30 episodes in four months um, this year. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're short-form episodes. It's like 15-minute episodes, but it's wall-to-wall music, um, which it's just nuts. Like, uh, I, it's breaking all the rules as far as, like, there doesn't need to be this many cues there. But I get it. Like, I understand, like, the momentum of the show is is supposed to be this sort of, like rapid fire thing so it was like when they when they uh when we started and they just kept being like yeah we want to queue here we want to queue here it's just like holy shit okay all right um but it's fun it's fun because it's a lot of challenges of like okay i've never done this before but i'm about to figure it out tell us uh the tv show that just got picked up for 30 more episodes uh what's it called where is it streaming and and you're you're doing all of this by yourself, so like no. anything they okay. So there are there is there's more than just you on this one. More than just me on this one. The the bull stuff I did on on my own and the early like sports organization stuff was just me. But when I got this show, I knew it was going to have to be like um, just the management alone of you know drafts of cues and everything. Like I knew it was like okay, I should not be doing this by myself. So I have a partner. His name is Giacomo Picasso. Um, Strong name. Oh yeah, he's from Chile, and uh, and he's brilliant. And um, he's been in the. He came from playing in bands as well, and then jumped into the commercial world of uh, of doing you know commercial spots and stuff, and had been exclusively there for a few years. Um, so uh, we met through Will Noon actually um, out here in LA, and I called him. I was like, "Listen, dude, this is going to be nuts. So I need some help." And since then we've done all our scoring work together so um so yeah he's he's my partner on all that stuff uh the show is called mr student body president and it is on verizon's streaming service which i believe is like a phone app thing it's called uh, verizon go 90 and but i think all the episodes are up on youtube at least the ones that they've released so you can see them there um and yeah it was cool the new season they did like a premiere at the chinese theater here in la uh, a couple weeks ago and like i was really bad habit of like sort of underestimating um <laughs> the excitement of things like, like i was like yeah cool all right we'll go to you know go to the premiere and then like i got there and i was like dude, this is wild. We're at the Chinese theater. <laughs> like, we're going to hear our cues on this gigantic system. Like, this is... We can uh, take a second and pat ourselves on the back. Like, we don't need to, you know, necessarily take a thousand selfies of ourselves and do the hashtags and all that, but we can take a moment and say, this is cool. You know? Have you have you seen the movie? Because I have this visual in my head. Have you seen Forgetting Sarah Marshall? Oh, yes. Dark right, and... You know how, like, uh, Jason's character, he works on, 
yeah. scoring, doing exactly what you're talking about, and then like right. you know, at, at some point he just takes the music stand and just sends it right through the screen. Yes. You're so I'm imagining really that your setup is exactly the same. You have this like ginormous, massive movie screen, and as they play it, the the engineer just says, "Oh, we need an ominous tone right now," and you just hit the keyboard. It's actually not these. Uh, the two directors who we worked with are. Um, super talented and very very musically inclined um very particular references like they'll have something where they want you know i would say the the, the one thing that comes to mind is they wanted to allude to a film from i think it's 1984 called the right stuff uh it was like a space race film and they wanted an orchestral piece in the midst of their episode that was like a minute and a half long sort of crescendoing in the same way that this that this theme did uh, and they'll hit us with stuff like that all the time. Like they'll be like, "We want this to feel like, you know, the Twilight Zone or whatever." So we do these these cues where we have to like put on a hat, sort of, for the moment, and then we also have like the world of the show cues, which are like, "Okay, we know we know what to do here," you know. And uh, and that was that's more the stuff I was ta- talking about earlier. That's like f- the fun stuff of doing like big analog synth stuff, like real aggressive bass lines and stuff and just dirty drums um so uh so yeah so that that that's it's like sort of two different worlds that we're in in that sense but fortunately no we don't get too much like dark and ominous or whatever and even when we do they let us have like we've been able to have fun like as long as i get to play with toys and like and don't have to like you know, like you can hear the difference between some stock shit and like some some shit that people put time into, and um, there's plenty of like cues in this that that are just short little dark ominous cues that I'm super proud of that were like me toying with modular synths and stuff like that, and um, and just having fun. I had a I had a love for a, a Bjork album back in the day, Vespertine. I think that was from like it's early two thousands, right? Like two thousand one. I remember uh, she brought in that group Motmos, who I think moved from the West Coast then to the East Coast, and we're living here in Baltimore. Uh-huh. Um, and on that record, they would do things like uh, like shuffle a deck of cards or shuffle their feet through gravel. Right. Um, because I think her cues were like, well, I want the snare drum to sound like uh, a flower. A uh, little bud of flower that was like just opening, and so if you could amplify that times a million, that would be the snare tone. It seems uh, in in regard that yeah, it's still like a little bit in the box. They might say, "Hey, I'm looking for this." You get to really go off the walls and experience kind of like when you know the first guy who ever grabbed like a drill or a vibrator or something and put that on a pickup. Right. And was like, this is what we need to do to experiment to make noise on this album. It's like, right. you get to go off that nth degree of creativity, which sounds, I, I think for most musicians, that sounds like, you know, the utmost freedom. Yeah, it's really fun. It's, it's, it's the type of thing that I feel like time permitting since like, you know, a lot of the turnaround times on this stuff is, is pretty fast when you got to do three drafts or whatever. But time permitting, you can, you can go as far off the deep end as you allow yourself to um so long as your directors are cool with it and um and we definitely had a lot of fun plugging stuff into to weird shit and just you know seeing what we come up with um we definitely had a lot of fun with it so ryan with with time being of the interest i want to go off Mm -hmm. the deep end of this conversation and start digging into a couple questions we got from uh, people in the facebook group 
Of course. Uh, and for those listening, if you don't know, facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. Uh, that's really where uh, this chocolate croissants culture comes to life uh, day in and day out. Uh, so if you're not there, please join. It's private. We'll accept you. Um, there's a lot of really good engagement going on. And part of that engagement is being able to ask questions and, and help creatively direct uh, these episodes. So, so Ryan, Austin Jones, he's curious um, about how do you, quote, practice writing interesting and compelling lyrics? And he's wondering if you find that reading poetry helps you for that. Um... You know, I'm very undisciplined when it comes to lyric writing. Um, it is the type of thing where I feel like, and this might be weird to say, it's not that I, f- it's not that I feel as though um, I know everything or I have everything I need, but I do feel as though when it comes to writing lyrics, it's like a time and place thing, and I probably spend more time trying to get myself into a headspace in which the gods will visit me and pen will go to paper and something special will happen because I've found that with lyric writing for me, if it's anything that's disciplined, um, nothing special happens, you know? So, like, I'll write in my journal um, just to get that muscle going. Um, like, if I find that I've gotten away from it a bit and I need to I need to be focusing on lyrics, I'll, I'll start writing in a journal again. Um, but like, I was actually just talking to Brian about this last night because he texted me and said that like, he has this drive that he has to do a couple times a week. And every time he passes this particular corner to like on the way to get coffee, he has ideas. And then he, um, when he goes and gets coffee, if he still remembers it, when he gets back into his car, he knows it's good and he writes it down. And I'm like, I totally back that like sort of spiritual connection to it because i feel very much the same way there is a there's a great poet i forget who it was but um she used to work on plantation and she has these stories of like inspiration visiting her while she was out in the field and she would have to run as fast as she could back to the house to write it down and sometimes she would trip and fall and on those days when she'd write it down the poem would come out backwards wow yeah, and, like, that's how I feel about lyric writing. So, like, I think we're always, I'm, I'm really, I'd be lying if I said I sat down and, like, read poetry or anything like that. The majority of the reading material that I actually dive into is more about um, wildlife, honestly. And I don't know if that really finds its way into my stuff. I don't really think it does often. Um, so it's not, it's not disciplined. It's very separate. But... I think if you look around and you go through your day in a conscious state of mind, like you can be that sponge with anything like experience and seeing things like you can be the sponge everywhere. And, and, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be from poetry or from a book. Like I find myself in conversations daily where people say things to me that are, extremely poetic or maybe don't seem poetic in the moment but if you think about them it's like wow that was incredibly profound even though it wasn't intended to be so i feel like that's more my method for for writing lyrics is just to is to focus on being present yeah i think that's so important for for everyone to hear one just the last point of being present because 
there's always input that that you can distill for whatever it may be um and and i know for me uh you know i still work as a musician and and i'm creatively doing this podcast but i just started uh, a job with a pro wrestling company a few months ago and on paper uh there really wasn't anything that like looked like this linear path to get to that position that i'm in right now but to me it, it wasn't circuitous in that being in a band and and doing this podcast and and being a psychotherapist and and building a business around you know drumming therapy and, and drumming experiences like all of that to me made perfect sense for me to be the perfect guy for this for this branding and marketing role for a pro wrestling company and it's because right. I see I see the parallels between all of this stuff. It's all the same to me. And I think if if people can maybe uh like open up the blinders a bit and, and realize, hey, even even Justin and I often talk about what happened to all those people we used to play shows with? Like what did they do when the band thing didn't work out? And right. I wonder if they realize that all of those experiences as a musician uh put them in a position for endless more opportunities, just maybe not Absolutely. in music. Absolutely. Dude, I'm I'm helping an artist get ready for her first shows and essentially music directing her show and all of that. And it's something that I did not even realize I had as a skill set until like a year or two ago. But I started realizing it's like, oh, wow, these labels are throwing out six figure deals to kids with laptops in bedrooms who have never played a show. And like we did that for years before we like had anybody pay attention you know so i it's a very i can totally relate to that because i'm like i i that's something i do i like walk into rooms and people are like hey i have no idea like where to start and i'm like cool here we go like let's figure out how to interpret all these songs for live and who you're going to need on stage and what it's going to look like and what it's going to feel like and all of that you know and it's it it's not something I trained to do. It's just something we all did naturally for years, you know? Right. It's just if you, if you put the time and work into anything, the lessons are everywhere and, and they right. come, they're so abundant and it really, it, it translates so easily. Um, it's interesting because I don't really know the context to what these people did beforehand, but I remember watching like Jonas Brothers or like Hilary Duff or Ashley Simpson and like they, they all had, maybe it's Taylor Swift as well, whatever it was, you know, all these pop stars, they all had these uh, directors who literally told them, okay, and at this point in the song, you're going to walk this way and you're going right. to stop right here on the stage. And why? Because whatever. And who knows? I'm, I'm, I would hope that the, the people or imagine that the people uh, who are these directors, you know, they're not even band leaders. They're just like, the director of the person and to, to, to make the stage show come to life. And I would hope they have some kind of background in it. But if they don't, but they know how to do it, well, then more power to them. Exactly. Because right? exactly. the lesson could have came from anywhere. Just like, hey, here's how you control the crowd. Right. This is what I need you to do to win them over. This is right. what you're going to do. And I've been there. I know what it's like. So it is It is crazy to think, but it's not crazy. You've been there. You've controlled crowds. You did this for 10 plus years and you have right. tons and tons of experience which makes you a supposed expert on the field right. so why wouldn't they bring you on and uh why wouldn't the people that are in that powerful position who chose that person um to go off and do what he or she is now going to be doing performing for people why wouldn't they then then go whoa this ryan guy he really gets it and if this goes well let's give him some like really big artists who uh are are doing really well but we want to push them to like the next level right right 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The door the doors keep opening everywhere. Absolutely. It's, it's uh, the one thing I will say for um, the person who asked that question, the one thing that has remained the same is that when I do write lyrics, I just have a, a text edit document up. I know it's more romantic sounding with a notebook, but my, oftentimes my feelings or brain works quicker or harder uh, than I can than my hand moves. So I do text edit and I keep everything. So like when I if I decide to scrap something or things start to take a turn, I copy and paste below it, put hash marks to separate it and start making edits there. So oftentimes by the time I get to like the final thing, there's like seven duplicates above it in various stages of development because a lot of times I'll go back to a line and be like, oh, actually, that is good here, or I liked that better here. So um, it's kind of a weird method, but that's that's how I write lyrics. Um, and, and I always have uh, notes on my phone just from, you know, anything that strikes me. I'm, I'm just always inputting stuff there, too. So Do if that helps them, that's... Sing that's or uh, mark anything down from... Um, from using like the actual mic on the uh, like the input onto the phone, like using the recorder. I know Jordan. Oh and I, yeah. Like I'll I'll just like say Siri, make a note or something like that, and I'll just start talking, like riffing, you Absolutely. know, on, on an idea, and then go back and take anything that feels good or relevant, and and try to at least distill that down into a piece that makes coherent sense, because a lot of the words are lost in translation. Yep. Um, yep. I know Jordan and I both use it that a lot, and and interestingly, I was listening to. Someone, I, I think it was like, which is funny because this kind of goes like full circle to like all the bands that we were talking about earlier, but Matt Rubano was doing, um, he was hosting some kind of show on, maybe it was like Alt Nation, Sirius XM. Right, right. Uh, and it was, I think it was maybe his show and I heard, um, I think it was Anthony from Red Hot Chili Peppers was just saying like, that like, I never have a notepad near me or I never have my phone when I have a great idea. But luckily the newer guitar player, Josh, it's like when Josh just writes down everything and records everything that everyone is saying almost like at all times. And so if I'm confused and I forget something, I just ask him and he says like, oh yeah, three months ago on that day, in that context, you were saying, and you sang this. That's wild. It's like, like, why wouldn't you use the technology that's there? Of course. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of, full circle um so ryan you're still doing envy on the coast mm-hmm. uh you have some holiday shows coming up uh that you can plug but billy reimer is the drummer is that right he is playing with us for these shows and he played with us on the ep okay and so i first i mean i guess i probably saw billy with dillinger a few times but i saw him at bonnaroo uh many years back uh they performed as Dillinger, but then also, you know, Justin mentioned Nine Inch Nails earlier, and he and, uh, and a couple you of the were dudes, at that? Yeah. They played Wish. I remember that. They played I, yeah. I watched songs. the video of that. It's incredible. And yes. then to go even further full circle, a couple months later, I meet Billy hanging out with Matt Halpern. Right. And I got to geek out over that experience, as I'm sure he did as well. Um, right. So, 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 Wait. Let me play full circle one more time. So we talked about, unfortunately, and uh, you know, we talked about uh, suicide, and we did talk about Chris Cornell. And I was very fortunate to go to the uh, Soundgarden Nine Inch Nails show when it came somewhat close to here, like two and a half hours away from here. And the band who was supposed to open that show, 
I'm blanking on their name, but they decided as a band, maybe Death Grips, that like they had done everything they wanted to do as a band. They got the Nine Inch Nails Soundgarden tour and that was enough for them. And I might be taking that totally out of context, but something of that nature. And they dropped off. And who got to drop on? Dillinger Escape Plan. There you go. Oh, it's so good. So where are these shows? Uh, How can people see them? Are tickets available? And uh, what's it like playing with Billy? Um, so shows are 20th, 21st, 22nd, and 23rd in Boston, New Jersey, Brooklyn, and Long Island. Um, you can get tickets on, uh, at nvonthecoast.com or on our Facebook page, NB on the Coast. We're, we're NB on the Coast, at NB on the Coast, Twitter, Instagram, everywhere. All the ticket links are everywhere. Um, I love playing with Billy. Uh, I think Brian and I... You know, when when we got back together doing this, we we decided that we wanted to kind of sleep around a little bit as far as working with different musicians um, and just keep it the two of us, since creatively at the core we had felt that that had been the driving force regardless. So um, we had played with Billy with that side project, like I said, and uh, I love playing with Billy because he's, in my opinion, he does not think and play like a drummer or like most of the drummers that I've played with in the sense that he is um he's extremely instinctual he's like he's incredible at playing for the song I often despite what his reputation probably is with Dillinger on the EP I had to push him to show off like I I had to push him to open up like he was because I wrote all the drums and played on the demos and he was kind of just following me to a T and I kind of had to be like, yo man, I wouldn't have called you if like, I wanted you to do that. I would have just did the shit myself. Like I want your flavor on here, like open up, you know? And, um, he's amazing. Like he's, he's personality wise. He's one of those like people who just like the minute he sits down behind the kid, he's like, let's go, you know? And, uh, just gets everyone excited you know um he just loves to play like he just really loves music and loves to play and i very much enjoy being around those people that's great yeah um it's so important to know the right guy you know because it to me it was so impressive when um i was watching some videos and uh and the next thing I knew, I think you guys were, were out in California recording. And the next thing I knew it was like you were playing drums. And that wasn't on my radar that you were even a drummer or that you had those skills. Right. Um, that was so impressive. And I think Sal even, did Sal play drums? He one played point? on one song. On sure. I mean, song. That, that, that's just so impressive, you know, to be that well-rounded as musicians. And you guys, and you said it earlier that you guys wanted to, to go there as musicians to be, you know... Uh, like musicians, musicians of, of, yes. of sorts, you know, and, and you guys really were, I, I always thought I was like, damn, like they're consummate performers, like they're so professional and they're so good at their respective craft, yet they're also so good, um, you know, going away from their specific craft that maybe people identify them is, right, or right, identify right. them are, right? You know, it's like, this is what you do, but you can also pivot and do these other things. That to me was so impressive. Uh, one last question I wanted to ask um, sure. before we let you go, before we wrap. I remember, and I feel like this was at the record as well, but it wasn't on the, it wasn't that first show that we all played together. Um, 
But I remember you said you had health issues and you ended up clearing them up by going vegan. Um, and then you alluded to the fact that uh, you and your fiance both don't consume meat. And I was wondering, are you still vegan? And uh, how do you feel? Do you still feel, you know, are, are all those, the, the issues you were dealing with then, have you, you know, kind of like eradicated or at least mitigated a lot of those issues? And um, are you still doing the same thing just because it feels great or because it's a, it's kind of a choice of um, making yourself feel the best you can feel? Um, vegetarian, uh, though we pretty much cook vegan at home now that I think about it. Um, like I can't think of anything that we keep in the house that really, yeah, that isn't vegan. So, and we eat out very sparingly. So it's, it's pretty much vegan, but I won't declare that for those who are militant about it. Cause that's not fair. They get to they get to wear that patch. So no, I agree. It's, it's kind of, I've been having that conversation a lot more recently as, as someone in like that field. It's so ridiculous. It's like, you don't have to so, identify yourself by this one word because sure, of the sure. choices you make for food. Like, dude, I'm a person. I eat food. Sure, so totally. maybe most of it is like plants, but like, don't I, you know, don't right. tell me yeah, I'm not again or whatever. Right. 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 No, I feel you. I'm, I just don't want to, I don't want anybody coming after me, you know? And uh, no, you're Absolutely. not a real vegan. Uh, but um, anyway, and you're in the uh, perfect place because I remember living in in Los Angeles, um, and there were so many places. That I'm trying to, th- and I'm like trying to think of all their names. There was like there was like a chain, um, that I would see certain certain like bands that were like pretty hardcore in the vegan world, or just like known. They would always be at like the the fast the fast food restaurants. Um, right, right. With real um, food daily, I would I would go there with friends who were vegan and like nice. I don't know that one. Oh, I, I feel I feel like that's the one I'm thinking. Real Food Daily, and there would be like it was like a musician's hangout. It was like the um, like the Rainbow. Okay. Like the right. It was like the, it felt like that for musicians for, who were vegan. For punk rock dudes, gotcha. Yeah, for punk rock dudes, exactly, exactly. Gotcha. Well, that's awesome. Um, cool. We were at a place called Mohawk Bend last night, which I believe is predominantly vegan stuff, um, and it's really great. It's in Echo Park. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of good spots here. There's um, I would say my favorite. Um, which we don't frequent, but every once in a while we go to, um, is Moby's restaurant, which is called Little Pine, and all of the proceeds go to animal welfare uh, organizations. Oh, he does wow. Not, yeah, he does not take a profit off of it, so, and it's a like, really, really good restaurant. Um, and he has one in New York as well? Oh, I don't know. Does he? I, I thought Moby had started one um, in New York. If I'm not mistaken, I kind of remember that, and maybe I'm no, it off. It could be but... right. It could be right. Um, yeah. We've only been to the LA one, but um, but yeah, it's really great. Um, but yeah, I did it. Uh, I did it because I had a lot of stomach issues and just general health stuff that I was dealing with at the time, and it was not something that any medical doctor recommended, nor would they really, because they're a different school of thought, you know, and. Um, I got tired of, you know, medications and crap like that. They thought I had, like, celiac disease for a while, so I went gluten-free. Um, that didn't seem to help. So I just figured I'd try it, and um, it seemed to work. It just seemed to make me feel better. Um, and I've always loved animals, but I, at that point in time, it was more about my health. Um, though over the years visiting many animal sanctuaries with Lisa and just having animals become a more closely 
um, just something that's closer and more part of our daily lives, uh, I would say that my reasons for sticking with it um, uh, definitely have to do with that. Um, you know, like I tried to explain it to someone recently because um, they were just like, but don't you miss it or crave it or whatever? And it's just like, not really, but even if I did, there's this thing of like, you know, I remember being at the Woodstock Animal Sanctuary and like coming head to head with this gigantic cow who's been at the sanctuary forever. And it's like, once I had that moment where I like looked at this cow and was just like, oh my God, like the, this, that's what this is, you know, like, and I created the connect and got rid of the disconnect that exists there. I just couldn't do it anymore. Like it's not, I just couldn't, and I don't judge anybody at all for, you know, liking meat or eating meat. It's literally just a personal thing where it's like, I can't sit down and do it because I just, I'm just kind of like, Ugh, I don't, I don't know. You know, there's now that connection rather than that disconnect. And, um, and yeah, I do feel great. Um, I would say that Lisa and I probably, um, she doesn't even like stuff that tastes like meat. Like she doesn't even like a lot of the like fast food ish type stuff or like the, Oh my God, like it really tastes like Buffalo wings or whatever. Like it's, she's, she just likes vegetables. So we cook a lot at home and we just eat a lot of vegetables. You know, like I made, I made a pretty damn good curry stew last night and, uh, we both enjoy cooking and kind of just winging it and trying new stuff. So, uh, so yeah, that's, those are the reasons, you know? Yeah, no, but I, I think the most important part, and I think about this all the time, is, is um, you know, before you make a very Jurassic decision or you listen to a doctor who tells you, oh, you should try this, this, that, or the other, you got to tap into your own personal health, uh, you know, your story and uh, how you feel when you eat certain foods, because obviously you're experiencing something for a reason. And to me, it's like, I want everyone to just feel their best as often as they can. And so, you know, all of these labels aside or eating certain things or not eating certain things, I think just, you know, tapping into, and, and you had said it before, you know, tapping into what makes you feel best and trying things is so important. And then listening to your body and, and if you're feeling good and, and I love hearing, you know, you're saying like, you know, we eat a certain way and we feel great. Then like, why would you change it? There's no reason right. to change it when you feel good, but a lot of people are dealing with it. And, and I hear this in the group, um, in the chocolate croissants group on Facebook, or I, I've heard this from, from a lot of people personally who will tell me that they just, they just don't feel great and they want to feel great. Ultimately, they want to wake up and feel really good right. uh, and go throughout the day and feel like they have great energy and it's sustained and all this stuff. And it's stuff that I, I, I just think about this all the time. And it's really like, you know, it's your, your preference, what you choose to eat, but tap into most importantly, how, what you're consuming makes you feel. Because totally. ultimately, at the end of the day, it's it's just to provide some sustenance and some energy to make you feel great. Right, right. And uh, it's awesome. I'm, I'm just that what you're currently doing is working. Uh, you feel great. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I probably take it for granted, to be honest, because it's been so long that I've been doing this, that this is my normal, you know, but um, but I'm thankful that I feel good, you know. Hell yeah, what a Love good it. place to end. Um, so, Ryan... Uh, first off, thanks for giving us your time tonight. Of course, thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, whether we had met or not 11 years ago, it's <laughs> been a pleasure meeting you today. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Same, same here. So you've got the Envy on the Coast uh, tour dates coming up. You put out yes. a record recently. Uh, First Vows, what's going on with that? Uh, so I'll be putting out a full or two more songs. I've released three singles off of a five-song EP. Um, the most recent one is called Up in Flames, uh, which I'm pretty stoked on because it's like a pretty decent departure from where this project has been previously. So you can check that out on Spotify. It's part of the Nice Life uh, winter playlist. Um, so if you look up First Vows, Up in Flames, it'll come up. It's the link on my Twitter and my Instagram right now, too. So you can find it there. Um, and yeah, I'll be putting out some more stuff with that project. Um early next year uh this is this ep is the first like real collaborative effort that i've done with this project and um uh, if i'm being honest like i've gone back to making music predominantly by myself with that project from just more of a spiritual thing and uh, but i'm still very excited about and happy with sort of this um experiment that i did by going out and collaborating within the context of this project to see what would happen with it you know so um so yeah good for you man it's good to try new shit also and it it sounds incredible i love it personally yeah thank you dude i appreciate it thank you and you have a new video out right body talk yes so that was for the, the first single that we put out in april um honestly things got crazy with the scoring stuff and then it also got crazy with the just like release plan of stuff like it's too much to get into towards the end of doing this podcast with you but it was the type of thing where i just needed to pull everything back and keep it close to home because i felt like it was leaving my my hands and i didn't like that um so we had one video that we had planned and i didn't like it and then i ended up shooting this video myself with a friend of mine and lisa who is my fiance is the subject of the video and we just wanted to make something that was like sort of this unbridled unhinged self-expression um because she's not a dancer by trade she's just a woman who likes to express herself and is a strong defiant beautiful woman and i wanted to just sort of make that the um the backdrop for this video i think part of it was that the song was like uh, arguably the most poppy thing that i've put out under that project so i think i needed to do something that was a bit more like um, close to home to accompany it, if that makes sense, so that I could feel better about it. Cool. Well, what we'll do, we'll post that video in the Facebook group. Cool. And then, uh, are you a member in there yet, Ryan? Uh, I do not know, but I can make that happen I right now. I added you to it yesterday. Okay, awesome. Cool. You are a member. So, we'll post the video, and then for anyone listening, if you want to follow up with Ryan and ask other questions or just stay in touch, uh, that would be a good point of entry for you guys. Absolutely. Awesome. Cool. Well done, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I think I'm going to record an outro on the back end of this so I can let you guys go. Um, but uh, yeah, dude, let us know when you're, uh, when you're in Baltimore. I absolutely will. Uh, I absolutely will. And let me know if you guys make it back to the West Coast at all. Sounds good. Okay, we'll so uh, episode 36... Ryan Hunter, Envy on the Coast, First Vows. He's scoring possibly your next favorite film. Uh, Thank you so much, dude. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Hey, guys. Jordan, one last time for episode 36. Uh, Thanks for making it this far. As always, your attention is very much appreciated, and uh, we are very grateful for that. Um, I'm rushing right now. It's actually Sunday night. Uh, I have to go eat some dinner with some friends. 
and you will be hearing this soon as it's published a few hours from now. Uh, so I just listened back to the intro that I just did and like, man, absolute pleasure. I'm saying that like three fucking times, but honestly, uh, Ryan, it, it was, it was an absolute pleasure to, to spend some time with him tonight. Uh, it's one of those things, you know, when you're going to meet someone for the first time or you haven't seen them or really gotten to know them in a very long time, uh, whether it's like a first date or you're seeing just, uh, maybe, uh, a family member that you never really met, uh, and you never know how it's going to go. And that's how it was with me for Ryan today. And he's the man, uh, I'd be happy to spend way more time with that dude chatting. Uh, I just found him to be very smart, very engaging, and clearly he's very talented. Uh, so one last thanks to Ryan Hunter for that. Uh, Ring of Honor Wrestling, they are our sponsor for this episode, and they uh, are who I've been giving a lot of my time and attention to the past few months, and again, absolute pleasure. Uh, Final Battle is the pay-per-view this Friday. As I said in the intro, it is our landmark event of the year. It's sold out in New York City, the Hammerstein Ballroom, which I'm very excited to attend and to be a part of. Uh, but for you, if you don't have a ticket, you can watch it pay-per-view if you have cable or satellite or order directly from ROHWrestling.com, the Fight TV app, F-I-T-E, uh, Fight TV app, or PlayStation Network. Uh, as I said in the intro, it's, it's probably your best entry point into Ring of Honor as it is our marquee event of the year. Uh, final battle, it's this Friday, the 15th of December. Check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, lastly, the Facebook group. Facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. Uh, you know about it by now. If you're not in there, I don't know what else I can say. But really, the engagement there, it is truly the highlight of this project for all of us. And lastly, Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast app of choice is, if there's a way to leave a review for chocolate croissants, if there's a way for you to rate chocolate croissants, but most importantly, if you can subscribe to chocolate croissants, uh, it helps us. And uh, it may help you if you find value in these podcasts, uh, especially if it's Sunday night into Monday morning and we upload the episode and you are connected to Wi-Fi, it will automatically download to your phone if you are subscribed. And then when you take the commute to work or you are in the gym or uh, wherever you are listening to this audio, you don't have to use your data. And that is a good thing for all of us. I need to go eat. I'm very hungry, and I'm excited to hang out with these friends. Uh, and I'm excited for this week of Ring of Honor's final battle. Seriously, what a dream come true to be doing that and to be doing this band stuff, the podcast, the Beatwell stuff. Um, it's great. And honestly, for your attention to be a part of all of this with me, uh, I will be eternally grateful. So much love and respect to all of you. Episode 37 is next week. Really not sure what the plan is, but we're trying to coordinate with Matt and Justin to make this all come together for all of you. But the Facebook group, that's where I'll be tonight, tomorrow, and the next day. I hope to see you there. Have a great week, everyone. And until then, bye-bye.